Good morning. Good to see you all here. Um, uh, as things come back online, we are starting again our children's church um, starting this week. And so you many of you may have gotten word on that already. Um, but notice for children ages three through kindergarten. And um, there will be a time of it. We'll announce it right before the sermon, and the children can go out and they'll meet with their teacher in the lobby back there. They'll take them to uh, their children's church. And you pick up the children right down that um, uh, walkway right down there in front of the preschool down there. And you pick up the uh, children there after um, the worship service. And so um, also, uh, you know, we, are, we, are, uh, we have ministries in Belize that we are regular supporters of. We've had a number of trips down there to serve them. Not sure if we're going to be doing it this coming year or not. Obviously, uh, there are things that will dictate that. But we do have an annual uh, fundraiser for them, uh, for those ministries called Birdies for Belize. And um, this year's is going to be Friday, October 2nd at the Country, uh, Castle Woods Country Club. Now, you don't have to remember all that. There is a flyer um, out, uh, out in the lobby. You can pick up one there and you can kind of see what it's all about. You can either um, sponsor a whole um, or you can actually participate in, in the event itself or both. And so it's got information there, contact information. I really do encourage you maybe to, to be a part of that. Um, and especially if, if you love golfing and you love missions, it works out uh, together very well.
Praise God. I, I, was, I was sitting there, I had my eyes closed, I was listening to him sing, and then he stopped, and I was like, what's going on? And then I realized, well, that's when I'm supposed to get up and say some words. So uh, you're at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel proclaimed, and I'm so glad that we could be together this morning to gather around the Word of God and to worship Jesus, and uh, uh, God is good. And I want to call you to worship this morning uh, through our responsive call to worship. We're going we're gonna to say together the Apostles' Creed. So if you're able to, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I'm going to ask you this question. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated and let's uh, enjoy the ministry of music this morning. Power in the blood, power in the blood, sins 
saints are lost in his life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the blood. In the blood of the Lamb, there is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily his praises to sing? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood. When, we, uh, when, when the Apostle Paul's writing to the Philippians, as he does in a number of his letters, he's encouraging to them to unity, um, to being of a single way of thinking. Um, thinking is dominated by Christ, and it is to be seen in their love for one another. We live in a world um, which majors in division, and that ought not to be seen in the church, but sometimes it starts crowding in on the church. And so, uh, with this in mind, let's hear our text. It comes from Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in your infinite love and wisdom, you have drawn us into Christ and poured Christ into us imparting to us the mind of Christ. In his fullness of deity, he came to us, sinless to deliver sinners and to be our holy example. His was the humble and obedient death of the cross. His is the exaltation and the glory. Form us in this image, Lord. As humility is the essence of godliness, make your adopted children like our brother Jesus. Considering one another is more important than ourselves. Loving our neighbor, even those who hate us, always returning a blessing for a curse. In a world that is vain, even arrogant in its deception, without shame proclaiming evil to be good and good to be evil, be gracious to us. Give us discernment to know righteousness and courage to live that righteousness. As God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name above all others, help us believe that also our great joy is bowing our knee to his eternal will and glory. 
Father, bless now our worship and giving, made acceptable by the victory of Christ and through the obedience of faith. Use our gifts as an earthly means for the proclamation of the gospel of life, that every tongue would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. These things we ask, being what our Lord has taught us to believe, even praying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Oh, calls me 
This time, ages three through kindergarten can be released to the through the fellowship hall. One thing I noted at the, uh, at the first service was just how much of the gospel that there was in the music that we sang this morning, and just how it was proclaimed over and over again, and how good that is for our hearts to hear 
especially when we're in a series where um, we're kind of teaching doctrine and maybe the, the gospel is a little bit uh, less central um, because we are a gospel-driven, mission-centered family of believers, and I want to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed in our pulpit and from our stage. Um, so welcome this morning. This is uh, the Lord's Day. We're here to worship Christ this morning, to gather around the Word of God and praise uh, our Savior. We've been doing some tough work the last few weeks. We've been uh, going through a sermon series called Misunderstood Doctrines, and as a result, two weeks ago, we studied uh, the, the doctrine of sola scriptura, and last week, we studied the doctrine of limited atonement. And this week, we come to that sermon that your grandmother warned you about. It's that one like if you have a friend who y'all used to go to a Baptist church together, and now you're coming to Lakeside, they're going, you know they're a Presbyterian, and you know they, they believe in predestination, right? And, and so today, we're going to look at the Bible, and we're going to see if we can grasp this doctrine of predestination uh, let me be clear about today's teaching. I don't, I don't teach this doctrine to cause division. I believe that this doctrine is reflected in Scripture. I believe that we're called to teach the whole counsel of Scripture and not skip over the hard stuff or even the controversial stuff. Um, and, and we're not to skip over the, the parts of Scripture that don't agree with our own personal theology. So we have to kind of look at it all. And, and, and if we're off somewhere, then, then another place in Scripture will help refine us. As, as we say, uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, let me say this before we jump off into our teaching. We all bring our ideas and we bring our convictions to the Scriptures. So this morning, that's going to be true. You're going to all bring your ideas and your convictions to the Scriptures. You're going to bring your histories and you're going to bring your beliefs. But I want to agree on one thing before we go further. If it's true in Scripture, it's true. That's, that's where we kind of have to land. If it's true in Scripture then it's true independent of what we think, what we want to be true, uh, what we understood to be true. If it's true in Scripture, it's true. And we, we talked about that two weeks ago in Sola Scriptura, that Scripture is our highest authority. So let's jump in. So about this doctrine of predestination. Predestination is not an idea that came from the Reformation. It's not an idea that came from John Calvin or John Knox. It's not an idea that's developed from the Westminster divines. Predestination is a word that comes from the Bible. So, for instance, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not there. It, it is uh, basically an idea someone came up with, but the word predestination comes from the very pages of Scripture. It shows up in multiple places, and when it does, it's used to describe the work of of salvation. Any Christian who desires to use the Bible in order to formulate their opinions of God, and, and I hope that you, cannot with, with any in intellectual integrity wholeheartedly disregard this idea of predestination. It's just too prevalent. The idea appears too much. The word appears too much. The process is described in too great a detail to be wholeheartedly ignored because you don't like it. You have to do something with it other than just ignore it. Even those who don't want to prescribe to a reformed view of predestination have to address the word predestination. When it appears in the Bible, what does it mean then? 
For instance, if we were to look at Ephesians 1, 5, it says this, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So if you're going to re- reject the Reformed idea of predestination, you're still going to have to deal with this verse. And others like it. You're still going to have to deal with this idea that God predestined us for adoption. Why does it say that God did that? What, what are the purposes? Well, here in Ephesians it says, according to the purpose of his will. And as we look at Scripture, you're going to see that these two things go hand in hand, God's predestination by nothing else other than his will. If we were to just look at a few verses later in Ephesians, we would find Ephesians 1.11, and Paul's going to use the same phrase again. He's going to say, uh, in him, in Jesus, we have in, obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Paul says that in Jesus we have this inheritance, having been predestined according to what? According to the counsel of his will. In other words, when God was doing the predestining, where did God turn for counsel? What did he look at? What did he consider when he thought, okay, what's this person's destiny going to be? What's this Only the counsel of his own will. Pretty important as we go through this. Now, now stop for a second, because uh, before I get going too much further, you don't have to agree with me, but you cannot with any biblical integrity outrightly dismiss this entire idea of predestination. You can have a different doctrine of predestination than I do, but you can't ignore it or say it's crazy can't bury these verses and pretend like they don't exist because we're just scratching the surface of stuff like this. And in the end, every believer is forced to reconcile what Scripture means by predestination. So maybe the best way to use our time today is to look at three different ways that people reconcile the idea of predestination. Chances are you fall into one of these three categories. Uh, You can either see predestination as fatalism which is a mistake, I think, and we'll talk about how seeing predestination as fatalism is a mistake, and you don't have to know what that word means right now. I'll explain it in a second. Predestination you may see as, as foreknowledge, and we can talk about that in a little while too, and that one's confusing as well, but it's important. Or you can see predestination as an act of love. Predestination as fatalism, predestination as foreknowledge, or predestination as an act of love. I want to start by reading Romans 8, 28 through 30. And as we do, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to, in reverence of the Word of God read. And let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read. Father, we do come to your Word looking uh, for revelation, Lord, looking to know more about you, that we may worship you in a more perfect manner. We ask that you break our hearts for what breaks yours. We want to align our lives with the Word of God. Reveal to us your truth as we examine your scripture. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, we're going to examine uh, three views on predestination. First, predestination as fatalism. Then predestination as foreknowledge. And then predestination as love. Let's start by addressing those people who confuse fatalism with predestination. Do you know what fatalism is? Well, fatalism is this idea that came out of Greek philosophy. And it's this idea that your life was predetermined and as a result, and therefore, your, your actions don't matter. And so the classic fatalistic argument goes like this. Um, say you end up with some terrible disease, and there's really basically two possible outcomes to getting that disease. Either you get better, uh, or you don't. Either you recover, or you don't. Only two options. And if you believe that your fate is predetermined, if, if it's predetermined that no matter what you do, then why worry with going to a doctor? It's not going to change anything. Why worry with taking medicine because it's not going to change anything? The key here in fatalism is that none of your actions matter. That's fatalism. None of your actions matter. And this is not in line with the biblical doctrine of predestination. The Bible very much teaches that our actions matter. A fatalist would say something like, uh, why bother praying for someone who's in the hospital because either they're going to get better or they won't get better. But a Christian knows that while our God is fully sovereign and while he controls and orders all things, our actions and our prayers still very much matter. And it's not like we can just give up striving for righteousness and just do whatever we want. And Paul kind of gets into that argument in Romans 6. Remember this? Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Our actions matter. Our prayers matter. Our obedience to Christ matters. Uh, that's why fatalism doesn't line up with the biblical view of predestination. The bottom line is that no matter what God has ordained for your life on his end, you and I are responsible for what we do on our end. There is such a thing as biblical predestination. But that, that does not mean that your actions uh, don't matter, and that does not mean that you are not responsible for your own actions. You are. That's why Scripture is always spurring us on to righteousness. Well, if, uh, if predestination is not fatalism, and our actions do in fact matter, what about this idea that predestination can be explained as foreknowledge? I want to put a little, let's put my finger there for a second and say this. We're going to have a semantic issue here. Because there is such a thing as biblical foreknowledge. Right? The Bible is very clear that, that God does foreknow us. Um, but there is another argument out there in theology that's also called foreknowledge. And so we've got two understandings of the word foreknowledge. I want to talk very specifically about a, an argument against predestination that is called a doctrine of foreknowledge. And, and at the same time, I want to try to affirm that God very do, much does have foreknowledge of our lives but I want to speak uniquely about this other doctrine of foreknowledge. 
Oftentimes, uh, when someone hears about predestination, they'll get into this specific doctrine of foreknowledge that I don't agree with. And the way they'll make that argument is like this. Um, They'll say that God who stands outside of time and his great power to see things that have been and things that will be looks all throughout time to discover one thing. He's looking for who will eventually believe in Jesus. And that once God sees who will eventually believe in Jesus or choose Jesus, then God will in turn predestine that person. That is the the doctrine of foreknowledge that I'm speaking against, okay? The place in the Bible where uh, those who believe in this idea of, of predestination as foreknowledge will make their case in Romans 8, and, and we read that verse together a second ago as we all stood up. And uh, Romans 8 is a really cool piece of scripture. It, it's commonly referred to as the golden chain. And I love any piece of scripture that gets a nickname. Like uh, the Christ hymn of, uh, of Philippians chapter 2 is great. Uh, you know, we got Romans Road, and here you get something called the golden chain. Who doesn't like scriptures with nicknames? Now, the cool thing about the golden chain is that it is a biblical account of an ordo salutis. And you may be thinking, well, that's easy for you to say. Um, because let me, let me tell you what an ordo salutis is. Ordo salutis means order of salvation in the Latin. All right? And uh, in other words, it explains the order of events that happen in the process of salvation. And so the golden chain here in Romans 8, it gives us the order of events that God does in salvation. And so it's, it's pretty neat to study this. Uh, so let's look at the Ordo Salutis found in the Golden Chain, the Order of Salvation, to see why some people think that this explains predestination in that view of foreknowledge where, where God's looking to see whether or not you're going to choose him eventually. Uh, it's found in Romans 8, uh, 29 through 30, and it goes like this. For those whom he foreknew, so, so we, we cannot deny God's foreknowledge because it's biblical. God has a great foreknowledge for us. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, that's the second step, to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, that's the third step, foreknew, predestined, called. And to those whom he called, he also justified, that's the next step. And to those he justified, he also glorified. So, so when you put that in order, it's, it's, it's foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified this is the order of salvation for paul and he he gets it here in this golden chain so when you look at this list you can see why some people might say well the first thing that happens in paul's order of salvation is that god foreknows us he knows us completely it's true from from when the foundations of the earth were laid uh, and it's funny to think about that's when that foreknowledge and that predestination happened before the foundations of the earth we were foreknown amazing that before you or I were ever born that God knew us completely he knew the mistakes that that I would make he knew my secret sins he knew my stubborn rebellion he foreknew me and the same goes for you and even after foreknowing me and all my sin God still predestined that I might be adopted into his family by faith and because I was predestined to be in his family he called me out of sin and death. And remember last week we talked about the shepherd and the, and the sheep pen and the shepherd calls and the sheep know his voice and he, they, they follow him. I was called and I was able to, uh, because of that calling, to follow Jesus, to trust him. And because I was called to trust Jesus, I was justified. 
I wasn't sinless. I wasn't perfect. But I was covered by the blood of the Lamb and able to stand before my God. And because I was justified, God's promise is that one day I will be glorified and be able to stand in glory with my Heavenly Father. I think that's a, that's a beautiful piece of Scripture. It's the order of salvation Paul lays out in the golden chain. And it's only possible because of the atonement of Jesus. And listen, if we, if we do nothing else today, like you, you just think everything else I say is garbage, and we can agree on nothing else this morning, can we just take a moment and stop and just worship the Lamb? We can debate the specifics of salvation, but there's no debating its source. You and I find our salvation in the grace of God and by the blood of the Lamb. We do not find peace with God because we're good people. We don't. Because of any choice we've made ourselves or, or any righteousness we bring to the table. Grace is a gift that you and I do not deserve. Amen? That's the logic of all this. It's what makes the gospel work. Now we have a dilemma on our, on our hands as to how to understand foreknowledge in this verse specifically. On the one hand, Christians will say that when the word foreknowledge is used, what is being described is what we talked about earlier. God looking down the corridors of time and choosing to predestine those people who he discovers will eventually choose him. And that's how some people understand this word foreknowledge. Once again, I am not denying the, the existence of foreknowledge. God very much has foreknowledge. But it's how he uses his foreknowledge in the process of salvation that, that I think is very important. These people would suggest that the purpose of God's foreknowledge here in salvation is to discover who deserves salvation by discovering who will eventually choose to put their trust in Jesus. And for me, this understanding of foreknowledge destroys the gospel. Because instead of it being a free gift of grace, not based on our merit, it becomes totally based on our merit, just our merit in the future. However, others will say, and I will tend to agree with them, that this is not the purpose of God's foreknowledge. When the Bible says that we were foreknown, uh, when God looked down the corridors of time and saw you before the foundations of the earth were laid, it's not some test in order to pass or fail. Rather, God looked out at his people to see them, to know them, and to love them. This is the heart of God's foreknowledge. Not that it was some test, but rather that God came to know and to love us. And, and really, when you say foreknowledge, you could also be saying for love or is for, for loving. When you think about the biblical idea of knowing someone, to say that you know someone is to love them. The first time, and Jim was telling me about this in the office today, we were discussing this, and he reminded me that, that the first time that the Bible talks about someone knowing another person in the Bible was Adam knowing Eve, wink, wink. Right? He wasn't learning facts about her, folks. It means that he came to love her. Remember the old phrase that we used to use and we would talk about things like this and someone might say, well, I think he knew her biblically, if you know what I mean. Right? I mean, there's a sense where they're talking about love and intimacy. I think to be foreknown is to be foreloved. So who's right? Is predestination the result of, of knowing God, uh, how, or, or the result of God knowing us, how we would live and what we would choose? Or is 
predestination the result of God choosing us by the counsel of his own will, knowing and loving his people and choosing to adopt them before the foundations of the earth were laid. Well, who gets to settle this? Who gets to say which is right and which is wrong? What if we just kept reading and we went a little bit further and we just let Paul settle it? Let's, let's, let's try doing that. What was Paul thinking when he said foreknowledge? The very next verse we come to is Romans 8.31. And Paul starts talking in depth here about the love of God. So, so right after this, the very next verse, he just starts, and he's all these, all these verses that you've heard before about the love of God. Like, like the first thing he says, if God is for us, who could be against us? And then in verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in verse 38, you know this verse, uh, Romans 8, 38. He says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is stressing God's love. Not talking about man's need for obedience or some choice that man will make. And as we follow Paul's argument into chapter 9, we get some really clear verses about the election of God's love. And, and this is, if, if you talk to any Presbyterian who understands election, this is where they're going to build their case on predestination. I think I said this in the first, the first service. You know, when you become a Calvinist or when you believe these things, there's stages you go through. The first is anger. Like someone shows you this stuff and you're like, man, I don't know about all that. It makes me mad. Because this isn't how I thought it worked. And then there's like this acceptance. And then there's like this entitlement, like rage, where you, you're trying to convert everybody else. And John Knox had this statement that anytime someone accepted the doctrine of predestination, they needed to be locked in a barrel for two years so they could become less insufferable. But here's, let's look at chapter 9 and why so many guys like me believe in the doctrine of election and predestination. Um, Scripture is talking about God's sovereign choice and predestination in Romans 9. Paul's basic argument is this. He's talking about the nation of Israel and the children of promise. Who, uh, who gets the merit of God? Who, who are the people of God? Who are these children of promise? Are they the nation of Israel, or is it God's elect? And so in order to understand this, let's just start reading. Romans 9, 8. What he says. This means that it's not the children of the flesh, or, or Israel, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul says God's people are not necessarily those who, who are descendants of Israel by flesh. But rather, God's people are those who are the children of promise. So we've got to figure out who are these children of promise that he's talking about here. Uh, let's keep reading Romans 9.9. 9. For this is what the promise said. And this is, this is a quote in Romans where God is giving a promise to Abraham. Okay, and this is what it says. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This was God's promise to Abraham that his aging wife, Sarah, would give birth to a child. And from that child, and that child was Isaac, remember? From that child, God would bring forth his people. Are, are you tracking with me? God's promise to Abraham is that he will have a son, Isaac. And Isaac's offspring will be the children of God, his covenant people. So what happens when Isaac has children? Let's look at the offspring of Isaac. Romans 9, 10. 
Okay, let's look at that. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived, and Isaac was the father, uh, when, when she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, you've got to understand the logic here is Isaac and Rebekah have two children, two physical heirs, but guess what? Both of those physical heirs are not children of the promise. Only one is. Let's read what Paul says, Romans 9, 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born, either child, or had done nothing either good nor bad, like none of their actions, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here's what the Bible just said. That before these two children of Isaac were born, or either one of them had done anything, either good or bad, not because of works or knowledge of works, but because of him who calls, and we talked about this earlier, all through Ephesians, based on the counsel of his own will, that's what we read in Ephesians. God elects one brother to be a child of promise and another brother to not be a child of promise. They have predestinations. It says Jacob I loved. It says Esau I hated. Jacob was predestined to be a child of God out of God's great love. So this is where I come down on the issue. My personal view of predestination is that it is an act of great love God's love for us led him to predestine us to be children of promise before we'd done anything, either good or bad. And I dismiss this idea of fatalism. I dismiss this idea that says our actions don't matter. And I dismiss this idea of foreknowledge. I believe God very much has foreknowledge of us, but I, I, I do not agree with the perspective that God uses that foreknowledge to determine whether or not we will choose him and therefore, he chooses those who will choose him because I think that, once again, gives us the credit for our own salvation and turns it into works righteousness again. I see the doctrine of predestination as a doctrine of God's complete and unmerited grace and love for me regardless of my broken nature. And now some of you are going to be struggling with this. And you're going to have some serious questions. It's natural. And one of those questions you're going to have is, how is this fair? How is this just? And uh, can I tell you that Paul presupposes that question? That like he knows that's exactly what you're going to think when you hear this. Uh, in fact, we can read about that in 914. If we'll put 914 up, Paul presupposes his question. He says, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He knows you were going to ask that question. He knows we were going to feel like this wasn't fair. And what's his biblical response? Well, let's read that. It's 9, 15 through 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Think about this. This is the purpose that he's raised up Pharaoh for, that I might show my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills. 
and he hardens whoever he wills. I mean, the point of this is that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. It doesn't depend on, on human will, even human will in the future. And the example given is a sad one. It, it's Pharaoh. Scripture says that for, for the very reason that Pharaoh was raised up is that God would show his power. It was Pharaoh's destiny. In fact, it was Pharaoh's predestiny. And it wasn't a good one. Paul's explanation is simply, God has mercy on whomever God wills. And he hardens the heart of whoever he wills. And so another question that could pop up in your heart is you might say, so if God hardens Pharaoh's heart, how can he then turn and, and have judgment against him? Like, who can, who can resist God's will? Well, guess what? Once again, Paul presupposes this question. And so he says it right here in Romans. Romans 9.19. And, and we don't have that on the screen. I came up with it later. Uh, but, but basically, I'll read it to you. Romans 9.19, if you don't have your Bible out, it says this. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's what Paul says. Like, how can God find fault? Because no one can resist his will. And if God's predetermined that he's going to harden some people's heart. And then what's, his, what's Paul's rebuttal? What does Scripture says? It says, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say back to its molder, why have you made me like this? The idea here is that the potter has rights over the clay. To give whatever destiny that clay will become. And, and I challenge you to read that thought, that, that, that thought process in Romans 9 a little bit more. Uh, I really don't have time to, to really work all the way through it but, it, but it flushes that idea of pottery out and the purposes of the pottery that God's made there. I need to wrap this up. I believe that Scripture clearly lays forth the doctrine of predestination, and we have barely scratched the surface of the scriptural proof text this morning. I think there's two ways this doctrine is commonly misunderstood. The first, people hear about predestination and they think that their actions don't matter. They get lost in fatalism. That idea is, is not biblical. Our actions matter. In fact, you're responsible for your actions. The second way people misunderstood the doctrine of predestination is that they think that God uses foreknowledge to look into the future and decide who is going to choose Christ. And then, based on our choice to choose Christ, God will elect us, and somehow we get this free gift of grace that's not really free. It's really based on our action in the future. And I don't believe that that's good either. Friends, I think Scripture is clear that the only thing God considers in our election, when he's laying out our destiny, is the counsel of his own will. And this has been a, this has been a, a heavy sermon topic I know, it's, it's been hard, and it's the only second time in my career, in, in case you're visiting, you go like, do y'all teach on predestination like every week? Second time in my career to teach on predestination. Last week was the first time to ever to preach on limited atonement. We preach on the gospel. We preach on the full counsel of scripture. Just happened to be time to preach on this. I know uh, that, that while this is a true issue, it can be a divisive issue. If, if you don't agree with the predestination uh, as an idea, I want to say to you, grace and peace, my brother. You can't ignore it. If you don't agree with me, you don't agree with me, but you can't ignore it. You need to do the work and figure out, based on Scripture, why you don't think that's true. And it can't be just because that doesn't seem fair or seem right to me. Sola Scriptura. 
our final authority. It's true in Scripture, it's true. We've studied today the doctrine of predestination. And we have read together about God's great grace. It comes completely as a, as a gift of mercy. We've heard that God hardens whomever he wills and has mercy on whomever he wills. Here's the thing. Predestination really is this idea that I think when God gave it to us was supposed to give us great comfort in our salvation. I think he was, he was trying to say, like, listen, you've been predestined for glory. All, all you who, who profess the name of Jesus Christ, you've been predestined for glory. There's nothing you can, you can screw up and, and, and lose this, this destiny that God has for you. But I think what we've done with it in our hearing of it is we begin to panic and we flipped it around. And we've said, oh, no, I love Jesus, but what if I'm not predestined? It doesn't work that way. You love Jesus as you're predestined. It's the way it is. Human heart cannot love God unless a human heart has been called to love God. That's the result of the mercy of God. Thanks be to God for his merciful grace. Let's pray. Um, God, we've done some tough work and we don't want to lose sight of the blood of the Lamb. Praise be to Jesus. Thank you for what you have done. By your wounds we were healed. We can get lost in the weeds on this stuff, God, but I, I do think it's important to know these doctrines, to realize uh, that we brought nothing to the table. We didn't, we, we, we didn't bring goodness. We didn't bring the goodness to make a choice. We brought nothing. And in your goodness, you, you, you foreknew us. You watched us for all of our lives. And then you predestined us. And you called us. You justified us. And we have this great faith that you will glorify us. Thank you for all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's enjoy once more the ministry of music.
working through some tough doctrines, and obviously uh, there's a lot of questions you may have, and, and I just want to make myself available to answer your questions. And if you want right answers, you can ask Jim. Uh, either way, I mean, we, we'd love to speak with you more about this stuff. Uh, God bless you, friends. Uh, go now, and as you do, please take with you the love of God, the grace of Christ Jesus' Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit until we meet again. Let's enjoy the ministry of music once more. Excited. It was wonderful to meet with you and worship our Lord this morning. Until next week, God bless. Thank you.